Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We've been looking at the Upper Room Discourse, uh, John chapter 13 through 17, all taking place on Thursday night of the Passion Week, five full chapters on one night, one conversation. Last week, we looked at the beautiful promise that Jesus gave of the Holy Spirit and his ministry, specifically to provide divine help, that he alone possesses divine holiness as God. God alone possesses holiness, and he, indwelling us, possesses that holiness to help convict of sin and encourage in righteousness. He teaches us divine truth, and he brings divine illumination. Originally, I wanted to finish out these verses in chapter 14 today, but I realized we needed to slow down and just stop at one verse. I want to read these verses, verses 25 through 31, but we're just going to dialogue about one verse and dive deeply into one verse to see the care of our Savior. And the beautiful promise, this promise is staggering. And I want to make sure we know this promise, we understand it intellectually, yes, but we understand it experientially. We need to experience this reality. Here again, we see the care of our Savior. He's going to look out at his disciples, and as he's been telling them, I'm leaving you, and you can't follow me. As they've seen him in distress in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, they're, they're about to. They've seen that distress even in his face at these moments. They know that this is a difficult night. This is different. Something's going on. As he has said, somebody's going to betray me, and all of you are going to fall away, and Peter's going to deny me. Jesus looks out, and I just see him looking across the faces of his disciples, and he says, I can see something's troubling you. I can see it in your faces. I can see it in your eyes. And I don't want you to be left this way. I don't want to leave you troubled. And so he is going to speak to their hearts and plead with them to not be fearful, to not be troubled. Verse 27, when he says that, do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's really what we'd call in the Bible an inclusio, um, a, a bookend, if you will. Chapter 14, verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. And here, chapter 14, verse 27, don't let your heart be troubled. Be at peace. But how can we have peace in the midst of turmoil? In the midst of agonizing circumstances? That is what Jesus is going to address this morning. So let's read these verses. John chapter 14, verses 25 through 31. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. I'm leaving, though. So the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So do not let your heart be troubled. Or let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it happens so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of the world is coming. But he has nothing in me but so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let's go from here. 
Father, please be our guide through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in these moments. Teach us what this peace is, what it looks like, how it is received, how it is lived out. Prepare our hearts for seasons that maybe we are in, in this very moment of suffering, of turmoil, of agony. Maybe we have come out of a season of difficulty recently, and God, I pray that you would comfort our hearts with this peace. And God, I pray we are all going to go through times of trouble, so please grant us wisdom to know that days of trouble are ahead and that we would begin right now sandbagging our hearts, as it were, with the truth of your word so that when the hurricane of suffering would rail against us, we would be able to stand firm in Christ. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 27, that is all we are going to be able to get to this morning. Peace, I leave with you my peace. I give to you not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Peace appears twice in this one Verse. It's a very popular word in our day and age, but it's almost an impossible uh, reality. People are constantly pursuing peace. You just think about Mother's Day. What do mothers want? Just peace and quiet. Peace and quiet. Please, just volume down. Stop fighting. Peace and quiet. What's law enforcement trying to do? They're just trying to keep the peace. Um, we're trying to be at peace with one another. Countries, the world is trying to have peace treaties and be at peace with one another. Our whole lives are spent pursuing peace, and then at the very end of our lives, we rest in peace. Peace is everything. And yet it eludes us constantly. What is peace? The Hebrew word, you know the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. You could define it as everything that brings completeness, contentment, wholeness, tranquility of soul, satisfaction and rest. The Greek word is very similar, irene, which is where we get the, the name Irene from. It, it presumes that we're going to have problems. That's what the Bible says, right? We are going to have trouble. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Job said, man was born for the day of trouble. So in those moments of trouble, how can you have peace? That's the question that Shalom and Irene are trying to answer. And here, in this moment, Jesus is speaking about peace at the most traumatic point of his earthly life. Up until this point, he has not seen anything more terrifying than the prospect of going to the cross at this very second. And yet, he says, I have peace that I want to give to you. So, verse 27 gives us four features of God-given supernatural peace. Four features of peace that I thought it would be best to take our time and slow down and, and stare at this peace given by Jesus. Not only to his disciples in the upper room, but to all who would follow after Christ. Feature number one, we're going to look at the nature of this peace. Verse 27 starts out, peace I leave with you. What is this peace? What is the nature of this peace? Well, the New Testament speaks of two different kinds of peace. One peace is our relationship with God, and one peace is our experience in life. There's an objective reality, our relationship with God. It's a transaction. It's outside of us. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says that we have peace with God through Jesus. Because of what Jesus did, we have peace with God. So there is a relationship that has a barrier. We are enemies of God, but Jesus made the way for us to have peace. Every believer has objective peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. We were enemies with God, but now we have been brought into a friendship, reconciled. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19 says the same thing. We've been reconciled and brought into a peaceful relationship, an objective peace that has been given to us because of the work of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 says the same thing. We've been reconciled and given peace. Even Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15 that Brian uh, preached through a couple weeks ago. Our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel gives peace. It brings peace because it brings unity and reconciliation. Just think about all the times that the Apostle Paul says grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we have been given peace. Objectively, our relationship is peaceful. That's why we can sing, it is well with our soul because he made an end to our sin. We have peace. But that's not the peace that Jesus is speaking about here in verse 27. Now, the peace he is speaking about here flows out of our reconciliation with God. But this isn't objective peace as far as our relationship outside of us, a transaction. This is subjective, experiential peace. This is peace that is inside of you and experienced even in the worst of circumstances. Again, it's founded in our relationship with God. This subjective peace comes from the objective reality that we are at peace with God and that now the sovereign God of the universe is for us and not against us. That gives us the subjective peace that we are going to look at this morning. So the nature of this peace is a tranquility of soul, even in the midst of the, the hardest times, a settled, positive peace that thrives regardless of life's Circumstances. One author says it's an aggressive peace. Rather than being victimized by events, it attacks them and gobbles them up in peace. I love that. It's a firm conviction. This peace is a firm conviction that Romans 8.32 is right. That God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him for us all. So how much will he, with Jesus, give us all things? He's going to give us everything. He's, going to take, he's done the hardest thing. He can do anything to take care of us. Peace enables believers, as one author says, to remain calm in the most wildly fearful circumstances. It's never affected by circumstances, but instead it affects and overrules every kind of adversity. It thrives in the midst of trouble. There's an amazing story. I don't know all of the truthfulness of it because it's been passed down for so many years, but there's a story of Um, Artists that were commissioned uh, to draw, to sculpt, to paint um, some form of art that would best uh, picture what peace looks like. And so all these artists, they were wanting to win the grand prize. They started painting and drawing and sculpting. There were beautiful sunsets and, you know, just looking at the beach and tranquility of the majesty of creation. But the winner of the prize painted a picture of a bird in a nest on a branch that was sticking out uh, of of a waterfall, of a cliff with a waterfall going up right next to it with, with little droplets going over onto the nest. The bird had peace because he was home and safe in the nest, even though he's right next to a raging current. That's what this piece is. The nature of this piece is not circumstantially based. In fact, 
In times of outward peace, anyone can have peace. In times of outward peace, everyone is possible. It's possible for everyone to have peace. The question is, what about when the outward peace isn't there? Can we still have peace? This verse would say yes. That is a huge encouragement to my soul. This verse tells me that no matter what's happening outside of me, I can have peace. I can be happy. I can be filled with joy no matter what's going on outside of me. No matter how bad life gets, and life can get very, very bad. This verse tells me I can have a peace that's God-given, that gives me joy. I can smile, even in the hardest of circumstances. Turn to Philippians chapter 4, just really quickly. This will help define the nature of this peace for us. In Philippians chapter 4, you know these verses. Many of you have them memorized. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, just in case we didn't get it, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit or your meekness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, really, if you do all of verses 4 through 6, if you rejoice, if you are meek, if you are humble, if you recognize the Lord is near in his omnipresence, but he's also near in his return, and if you are anxious for nothing, but you pray and you come before the Lord with thanksgiving, verse 7 is our promise. The peace of God... This is not peace with God. This flows from peace with God, but this is the peace of God. This is the tranquility of soul. It surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard. That word guard in the Greek, it's to stand at a post, to guard against the aggression of an enemy. It's a fortress. It stops any thought entering our mind that would bring unrest. As As a thought comes in, As circumstances press in, we have a guard, we have a fortress because of Jesus Christ that allows us to say, that's not getting in. I can be at peace. Philippians 4 is a beautiful definition of what this, the nature of this peace looks like. It's subjective, it's experienced, and it is a gift. Back in John 14, peace I leave with you. It's a gift from Jesus, it's supernatural. So the nature of this peace is flowing from an objective reality, but this is a subjective, experienced peace. This is a feeling. This is an emotion. This is something you experience. Where do we get it? Feature number two. What is the source of this peace? So we have the nature. Peace I leave with you. We know what peace is. And even in that beginning of the verse, peace I leave with you, we know it's coming from Jesus. But he says explicitly, my peace I give to you. So what's the source? Jesus is the source. It's my peace, and I give it to you. There's a certain aspect where peace is the final will and testament of Jesus. I'm leaving something with you. I'm going to bequeath something to you. What is it going to be? What what could Jesus give? What could he possibly write in his will? He doesn't have a home. He didn't have money. Even the clothes on his back are going to be taken and gambled for. He won't even have that at the moment of his death. What could he possibly give as a will and testament to his disciples? I think it's the best gift possible. Peace. I'm going to give peace. He's already said he's going to leave them his spirit and and, and truth and teaching and now peace. 
even if we connect the Holy Spirit with the verse above, with this verse, Galatians chapter 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is peace. So it makes sense that Jesus says, hey, if you have the Holy Spirit, you can have peace. You'll have it. Jesus says it's my peace. And there's nobody better to get your peace from than the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace says, I have peace. Is it the best peace possible? Yes. He's the owner of this peace. And he says, I'll give it to you. Jesus here in this verse is saying, I have a peace that is unrivaled. I have a peace that allows me to have joy. Think of uh, Hebrews chapter 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He had joy even in going to the cross because of his peace. And he says, I can give you that peace. Do you want that peace? I want that peace. I can give you that peace. How do we get it? How do we get it as Jesus being the source of it? Turn to chapter 16. You know this verse as well. Chapter 16, verse 33. Where does true peace come from? What is the truest source of peace? I would say in the person of Jesus, in his word and in his work. In his word, in his person, and in his work. Look at verse 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage because I have overcome the world. Three aspects in that one verse. Where does our peace come from? Number one, it comes from Christ's word. These things I have spoken to you so that, second aspect, in me, in me, so it's in his person, it's in his word, it's in his person, and it's in his work. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage because I have done something. I've worked. I've overcome the world. So you have peace in the word of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, and in the work of Jesus. You can have this supernatural, amazing, tranquil peace. So Jesus is the source. Clearly, he says, my peace I give to you. That's a beautiful source. Remember when we studied uh, Palm Sunday, we looked at Jesus' peace before Pilate. Not shaking in his shackles, in his chains, not worried. He speaks so clearly to Pilate, lovingly, graciously, compassionately. You would have no authority but what's been given to you from above. Yours isn't the greater sin. There's one who has greater sin than you. Kindness. You, you have said the truth. I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Peace. In the craziest of circumstances, I want that kind of peace. And Jesus says, I can give that peace to you. My peace I give to you. So we have the nature of the peace. We have the source of the peace. Number three third feature of this piece, the contrast of this piece, the contrast. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. This peace transcends anything that the world has to offer. This peace goes deeper than anything the world could possibly offer. Jesus says, I'm not giving you peace in the way that the world does. I'm not giving you worldly peace. What is the world's version of peace? What's the world's version of peace? We were dialoguing about this on Wednesday night at our small group. What does the world need in order to be at peace? I think if we boiled it all down, it's two things. Either good, happy circumstances, that will be peaceful. Or, if we're asking the question, what what does the world do to have peace in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of uh, problems and seasons of suffering? 
I think the answer to that is blissful ignorance. I think worldly peace in the midst of hardships and trials only comes from blissful ignorance. There's a problem. Something's, something's going on. Something is not the way I want it to be. And I need to figure out why it's that way. I recently did a, a funeral for a very tragic event. Um, a, a young kid had passed away. And I talked with many people. There were hundreds of people at the funeral. And I talked with many of them. And in asking the question, why would God allow this? Why would this happen? Why could this happen? I heard from more than one person, I guess heaven just needed another angel. Now, I know exactly what they mean, and I'm not going to rebuke them in that moment by any means. That would be awful. But I, I remember, as, I've been, as I was studying this, I remember thinking back to that moment and realizing that brought them peace. They could not figure out how the formula works. Wait, we're supposed to live a long life. We're supposed to make it all the way to the end. And in length of life, uh, parents are not supposed to bury their children. This is wrong. And it is. It's the product of sin. It's the product of the curse. Something's wrong. Something's off. And I need to find a way to make it make sense. Even if it doesn't make sense. Even if the solution that I come up with has no bearing in reality, I'll still be happy. I'll still be satisfied. You see this constantly with the world. They want to have peace, and so they have to answer that question. And in answering it, they come up with some of the most ignorant, strange, naive, totally illogical answers. But they do it to find peace. So, worldly peace, two things. It's either based on circumstances. If nothing bad's happening, you can have peace. Or, in the midst of difficult circumstances, blissful ignorance. You just settle for an ignorant answer that can satisfy your heart. Why is this happening? Well, I'll come up with something. Okay, that's why it's happening. Now I can be at peace. The reality is, biblically, unbelievers cannot ultimately know this supernatural peace. Let me give you just four verses. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. There is no peace. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. Peace, peace, they say, but there is no peace for the wicked. Luke chapter 19, verse 42. You remember Jesus looking over Jerusalem. If you had known in this day the things which make for peace, I've come to bring peace, but you can't know it. You've rejected me, so now it's hidden to you. The world's peace is ignorant. The world's peace is fleeting. The world's peace is based on circumstances. And Jesus says, I'm not giving you a peace like that. I'm giving you a peace that cannot be taken away, no matter what happens. Chapter 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have tribulation, but you can have peace in the midst of it. So the peace that Jesus gives is not like the world. It's not circumstantially based. It's peace in the midst of the storm. Christ gives joy inside of the trouble. The world's peace is only the absence of trouble. It's peace that passes, surpasses all comprehension. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. This doesn't make sense because in the moment it looks like you should have turmoil of soul. Human beings can't understand it or make it happen on their own. It's a supernatural gift from the Lord. So not as the world gives do I give. So the nature of our peace, peace I leave with you. We know what peace is. My peace I give to you. We know where it comes from. Not as the world gives you, do I give to you. So we, know, we see the contrast. This is a peace that is to be envied. You want this peace badly. 
So how do we pursue it? This is aspect number four, the pursuit of this peace. We have the nature, we have the source, we have the contrast, and now we see the pursuit of this peace. You would think that when Jesus says, I have this peace, I want to give you this peace, I leave this peace with you, you would think the disciples would say, this is great, we have peace, thank you. But Jesus ends this statement, I have peace, I want to give it to you, and it's not like the world. And then he gives them a command. If you want it, you need to do something. Now, some people might say, well, hang on a second, he said he was going to give it to them. So, if it's a gift, then why are they doing anything to get it? The reality is, there are always appropriations of promises in the scriptures, right? There's always appropriations of promises. God makes a promise, and then we appropriate that promise. Jesus promises us in John chapter 14 that all of the resources of heaven are available to us, but what do we need to do? We must ask in his name. For those resources. He told us that we would have truth written in scripture, but how do we access that truth? We must study to show ourselves approved to God. We need to search the scriptures. We need to be diligent students. You have to appropriate the promises. He promises us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but we're commanded to walk in that spirit and be led by the spirit. He promises salvation and eternal life, but that's appropriated by faith. So there's always something that appropriates it. We have bank accounts with money in the bank account. But you need to withdraw it. You need to do something to appropriate it. Jesus is an endless bank account of peace. But you can't just passively sit there and say, I hope that God gives me peace today. He gives you the ability to appropriate that promise of peace. How does he give that ability to us? How is he going to Enable us to do this, and in what way is he commanding us to do it? This is a command. Admit your need, cling to the promises of Jesus, and steady your mind on the word and all of his blood-bought promises. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let it be fearful. Even with all of these promises that we've seen already in this one little verse, isn't it a reality that we live most of our lives lacking peace? We have the promise But we lack peace all the time. Why is that? Because we're not appropriating the peace that God has given to us. We are not living upon the commands and the promises. This goes to the reality of how to obtain this peace and how to appropriate it in our lives. And and it gets back to the nature of what it is. God's peace is a rational pursuit first and foremost. And an emotional pursuit second. It's a rational pursuit, first and foremost. There are three questions that um, one of my uh, spiritual mentors in the faith, uh, Pastor Rick Holland, asks every time that he's in the midst of circumstances that are troubling, and they have been three questions that I cling to and I live out. I've, I've lived these three questions out when I get a flat tire on the freeway, when I I find out that my child needs heart surgery, no matter what circumstance you're going through, these three questions, what do I feel, what do I think, and what do I know? What am I feeling right now? I'm feeling out of control. I'm feeling like the whole world's against me. I'm feeling like all I needed to do was get from point A to point B and my tire is flat and I have to change it. I, I don't have time for this. I'm feeling like my schedule's changed. What am I feeling right now? 
honestly admit that. What am I feeling right now? What am I thinking right now? Feelings flow from our thinking. So what am I thinking such that I'm feeling that way? And what do I know? What do I know to be true? And then you go backwards. Honestly assess. What do I, what do I feel right now? Why do I feel that? What am I thinking? But what do I know to be true? Now flip it around. What do I know to be true? So therefore, how should I think about my circumstance? So therefore, how should I feel? Feelings are responders. They're not good guides. You don't, you don't want to be guided by your feelings. They, they are responders to what's going on. Thinking is our guide. Thinking controls our feelings. Maybe it doesn't always change our feelings entirely, but it controls our feelings. That's why Jesus says, I have peace, you have turmoil, you can do something. Think rightly. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Think upon the peace that I have to give to you. One pastor says it this way, if you have a troubled heart, it is because you do not believe God as you should. You do not really trust his promise of peace. Anxiety and turmoil seldom focus on present circumstances. Normally, anxiety is trouble borrowed from either the past or the future, and most of what we worry about doesn't even happen anyway. Turn to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6. In verse 31, Jesus tells us what we are supposed to do. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Okay, so what do I know? I know that my Heavenly Father knows that I need these. He's going to provide. So instead of worrying, verse 33, instead of verse 31, do not worry, verse 33, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. So stop worrying and start living out righteousness. Don't worry, but seek. When you follow the path of righteousness, peace will follow. How do you appropriate this peace? You obey God. You do what he tells you to do, and the peace is going to come. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. This is a verse that all of us should memorize. The steadfast of mind, not emotions, steadfast of mind, you will keep in perfect peace, in an emotional tranquility, because you're steadfast of mind. You're thinking what I know, what I think, therefore what I feel. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 says that perfect peace comes when our focus is off the problem, off the trouble, and consistently on Jesus. So pursue joy. Pursue, as Philippians chapter 4 verses 4 through 7, rejoice. Let your meekness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Uh, pray. Give thanksgiving to God. When we pursue righteousness, trust, obedience, right thinking, right believing, we will have peace. This is the peace that Jesus promised to his disciples and to his followers. So I, the, the right question that we need to ask ourselves is, do you know the Prince of Peace? Do you know him in this way where you can go to the bank account of his peace and withdraw every second of every day? Anytime you need that peace, it's there and you know how to appropriate it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be fearful. That's a command. Obey that command. And your peace will be given. God's peace will be given. Sometimes in the midst of trouble, we don't run to Jesus to pursue this peace. Why don't we run to him in prayer? Why don't we run to him to pursue this peace? Can we just be honest? Because we don't think it does anything. 
right? We're in the midst of something that's challenging, that's difficult, and we go, okay, intellectually, I know I should call upon the Lord and I should seek Him and appropriate the peace He's given to me, but when we pray, dear Jesus, help my heart, please calm my soul, give me tranquility, give me peace, amen, nothing changes on the outside. And we're struggling. Pragmatically, we go, well, that didn't work, I need to do something else. But, oh, there are so many here. I think all of us could stand up and testify to the grace of God. In the hardest of times, you have run to Jesus, and you felt a calm, a supernatural experience. This is an experiential peace that goes over your entire soul, and you couldn't, you couldn't tell anybody how that happened except for God. That's the peace that Jesus says, I want to give that to you. Come to me. He has purchased that promise. I have peace that I can give to you. He's purchased that promise with his blood. So through objective peace with God, we can have experiential peace in the midst of the storm. How do we wrap this up? It's a decently straightforward verse. I think we can wrap it up best by seeing the implication that Scripture gives us if we understand the first and the second piece, there is a third piece that the Bible talks about. If we understand the objective peace that we have with Christ, through Christ, with God, and we have subjective peace in the midst of whatever turmoil we are going through, the New Testament often connects the peace that we have with God and the peace we have in the midst of trouble with relational peace, with a one another peace. If we have peace with God, if we have an objective peace with him and we have peace in the midst of our circumstances in the trials and tribulations we are going through, then we can spread that peace out to those around us. Whatever relationship we're in, we can spread that peace out. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Huge passage. We don't have time to go through it, but just write it down. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. You know verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful to what you've been called in one body. What's this peace of God? What's this peace of Christ? This isn't just the peace of Christ that's objective, that we have peace with, relationally with God the Father. This isn't just peace in the midst of turmoil. This is peace that unifies in one body. That's why Paul says what he says, let, you, uh, let your souls be unified together in the peace of Christ, the peace that he has made possible for you Spread that out to others. I love the word rule in that verse. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That word rule is a Greek word that means an umpire, a referee. Let God's peace, the peace that you have objectively with him and the peace that you have subjectively in the midst of circumstances, let God's peace be the referee in all of your conflict, every decision you make, every dealing that you have with one another. It should dominate. Peace should dominate. This is what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Pursue peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So this is relational peace. We have objective peace, subjective peace, and relational peace. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Be diligent to be found by him in peace. And that's spread out with one another. James chapter 3, verse 18. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James says, if you righteously live out the commands God has given to you, you can make peace with everyone around you. So objective peace, subjective peace, relational peace. 
Psalm 34, verse 14, depart from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. Peter actually quotes that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17, the work of righteousness will be peace. If you obey God, you will have peace, not only just objectively, not only subjectively, but relationally. Romans 14, 19, pursue peace or pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Second Corinthians 13, verse 11, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like minded, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We we talk about this often from Matthew 18, that if God has forgiven us much, we must what? Forgive much. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive. But I think the New Testament connects so clearly. Those who have been given peace, give peace. Those who have been granted peace, extend that out to all their relationships. They give peace to everyone. So, since Jesus died to bring you peace with the Father... And since God is now for you and not against you, shouldn't we likewise pursue peace with one another and be for them and not against them? God is no longer our adversary. We should not be the adversary of anyone in our lives. So, how is your understanding of objective peace? Do you have peace with God? Are you seeking to gain peace with God through good works? Can I just free you in this moment, your good works cannot gain you peace with God. They cannot. We are all sinners. We've all done things that are wrong and we stand in judgment before a holy God because of our sin. And so many people try to say, well, I'll just outdo my bad works with some good works and show my good works to God. And you all know that good works are filthy rags before God. They cannot give us a right standing before a holy judge. That's why Jesus came. He lived a perfect, sinless life of complete obedience. And then he died the death that we deserve. He took our punishment. God the Father treated Jesus on the cross as if Jesus had lived my sinful life so that he could treat me as if I lived Jesus' sinless life. That's how I have objective peace with God. God is not my enemy anymore. He's not against me anymore. He's not a judge anymore to me. He's my Father. He's Abba. I run to him. I can, I can sit in his lap, as it were. I can do what I'm sure you're going to see my kids do when they run in here. Daddy, they're going to run up to me. They're going to jump into my arms. They're just going to trust that I'm going to not have something in my hand and I can pick them up and hold them. That's the relationship I have with the one who made the world. Not because of my goodness, but because of Jesus' goodness, his death, his resurrection, all in my place. Do you have peace with God the Father? How about your experiential peace? How rock solid is your confidence in God's sovereign love? How rock solid is your confidence? Have you been through trials where it's shaken you to your core? Don't worry. It does to everybody. But let your faith be built like James 1 talks about, right? Let it be built up. Trials are good. We are blessed. We rejoice in trials because they build perseverance as we continue to see the trustworthiness of our God on display and we run back to him time and time again for peace. And how's your relational peace? Does it flow well from the objective peace you have with the Father and the experiential peace he gives you because of his sovereign love? 
Can you say today, because of Jesus, because of his peace offered to you and the grace to appropriate it, it is well with my soul. It is well. Peace like a river in the midst of the storm. It is well. God, thank you so much for the peace that you give us through Jesus. We long to extend that peace out because since you are for us and not against us, we want to be for our brothers and sisters and not against them. And I pray that in the midst of the storm, we would have the peace that surpasses all understanding. We long for that and we know that it's possible through Jesus. So God, come what may, knowing that your hand is sovereign and guiding every moment, we trust you. We trust in your love everlasting. We cling to your unfailing grace. No matter what season, whether it's sorrow or blessing, we give you praise, we give you thanksgiving, because we know your undying mercy awaits. We cling to it now. God, I pray that all of our souls, collectively together and individually, would be able to say, it is well, because of what you've done. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Away.